So this is really the fourth message in this series. We've talked about why did God choose Joseph, Mary, why did God choose Joseph, and then uh, Christmas Eve we talked about why God chose Jesus, and uh, today we're going to kind of extend that. Why did God choose us? Right? Why did God pull us out of um, the realm of darkness into the life and the light of Jesus? Uh, is it just so that we have relationship with Him? Well, certainly that's the biggest reason why is that God in His grace calls us out of darkness into His, his kingdom, uh, but God also called us for a purpose, for a reason. It's why we exist as a church. And so before we head into the new year, I thought it would be beneficial for us to just kind of step back and say, uh, you know, what is it that God is looking to do in us and through us? You know, who, who are the people that we are to be, we are called to reach? Who are the people we're called to go to? Um, so in Luke chapter um, 4, beginning in verse 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found a place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I don't know, uh, probably most of us uh, remember growing up in school, uh, especially elementary school, uh, doing the Pledge of Allegiance every day, right? I don't know about you, but when I, when I went to elementary school, every single day we began the day with standing, holding our hand over our heart, and pledging the allegiance, the American flag, and it was a, it was a reminder to us of the fact that we live in a country, a nation that we, a heritage that has certain um, responsibilities and privileges that are attached to being a part of this country. Well, um, when people came to Jesus Christ and placed their faith in him alone for salvation, they too become a part of something that is bigger than their personal life, right? So God called us out of darkness into light for relationship with him, but also to give us purpose and meaning in life that is going to live beyond our lives here on earth. In other words, we're living for something, a purpose greater than ourselves. It's not just about getting God to do what we want him to do. It's about what is it that God is doing and what is it that he's inviting us to be involved with in our day-in, day-out lives. And so we are, we are birthed into this relationship. We come into a new society called the church, and the church has with it certain responsibilities and certain privileges that God has given to us. In fact, God the Holy Spirit took care of our pledge of the allegiance um, to, to the kingdom by baptizing us, the Bible says, into the body of Christ. So this isn't your water baptism. This is when you gave your life to Jesus, the Bible says that the Spirit of God baptized you into the body, the universal body of Jesus Christ. Now, we sit here together in a local church that's a part of that body of Christ, 
And so we are the representatives of God's kingdom, right? So the church is not the kingdom. The kingdom of God is wherever the rule and the reign of God is being displayed, wherever it's being followed, but we are representatives of God's kingdom. And so we are called to find out how his body functions and how we are to function as its members. Why is that? Because God is at work all around us in the hearts and lives of people. It may not seem like he's at work in somebody's life, but I can assure you that he is. God is always pursuing those who are outside of his kingdom. God doesn't give up on people. He'll pursue them all of their lives in order to, to call them into this relationship. And so when you and I came into the kingdom of God, and we come into the body of Christ, and now we're in a local body of believers, the Bible says that we have a responsibility, right? Our responsibility is both a ministry and a mission. Ministry is what we do to minister to one another in the local body of Christ. Our mission is what we do outside of these walls as we move into the realm of outside of God's kingdom, into Satan's kingdom, in the kingdom of darkness, because God is wanting to use us to help people find relationship with Jesus Christ. And so in essence, and this is on the top note of the outline, is that we have been called by God to be bridge builders. Jesus is the bridge. We're just helping bridge people uh, towards him, right? So they can, they can come, and so we're building bridges into people's lives so that they have the opportunity to make a decision about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are multiple, multiple ways that we can do that. But So we have China changed our um, mission statement to saying that as First Baptist Church, we exist to help people take their next step with God. Everybody has a next step with God. Regardless of where you are on the line of maturity, there is always a next step that you can take. Well, when it comes to the unbelieving world, there are next steps that we can help them take towards God, right? towards a relationship with God. I don't care if it's the most vile person that is out there. There are things you can do in order to help uh, them bridge that gap in that relationship, taking a step towards God. And we say we do this through real relationships reaching. And so that's what we want to do. We have a personal coach called the Holy Spirit who equips us and enables us, all of us, to be engaged in this process and helping people take their next step. So When you look at the text that we just read, the background of the text that we're looking at is that, you know, Jesus was born at Christmas time, and and we've talked about the fact that they had to flee to Egypt for a number of years, and then they come back, and Mary and Joseph, and they move to Nazareth, and that's where they reside, Nazareth of Galilee. And so when you look at Israel at the time, it was three regions, and the southern region was Judah, and then Samaria, and then Galilee. And so Jesus, we know, you know, we, the only glimpse we have of his childhood is age 12. He's in the temple, and he's, uh, you know, he's got left behind by Mary and Joseph, and, uh, which makes me feel better about my parenting skills. So they come back and find him. He says, well, what were you so worried about? Did you not know I would be in my father's house? And really, this, there's kind of like silence after that until Jesus, you know, begins his public ministry. And you'll recall that the inauguration of that public ministry was found at his baptism. And at his baptism, Father, Son, uh, and Holy Spirit were all in the same scenario, right? So the Father speaks from heaven, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes, and and God inaugurates and, and, and 
anoints Jesus and his public ministry begins. And why, why be publicly baptized? Well, you know, like most of us, maybe not all of you, but some of you uh, were confirmed as a child, maybe as an infant. I know that I was confirmed in the Methodist church as the infant. I had no knowledge of that, <laughs> no say in that. And so when I got saved later on in life, um, I, I, I was baptized. Why? Because it was my public statement of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm no longer living off my parents' faith or my grandparents' faith. I'm living off my own faith. I'm making my own declaration that I'm going to be a follower of, of Jesus Christ. We do baby dedication here at our church as parents are dedicating themselves and raising their children in a Christian home and environment. But once we give our life to Jesus, we take that public stand, I'm following Jesus. And so it was an example. It was a model that Jesus was giving uh, to the church that he was going to be establishing. Well, after that baptism, where's the first thing the Holy Spirit did? He took him into the wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan shows up on the scene, and he's tempting him. And We looked at that a, a few weeks ago. And then he went into the area of Galilee, and there for a year he has been teaching He's been preaching. He's been healing people. Um, there have been signs and wonders, and, and he's just a phenomenal thing. And so his, um, his reputation has grown, right? So remember that Galilee at that time was probably around two to three million people at best. Um, but Nazareth was a very small town. And so he comes home, right? He's like the homeboy, has gone off on his own, done real well for himself, and now he's coming home to his own synagogue, the one in which he grew up in. And that sets the context. I mean, he's already been to Jerusalem and cleansed the temple and all the the things that are happening. And so Jesus, uh, he returned, he says, to Galilee. But notice, in the power of the Spirit. Where did he, what power of the Spirit? Well, after the wilderness wilderness, uh, temptation experience. But what your translation doesn't bear out is the fact that he's, and he's been going through the countryside. This has been for about a year's time. And so he comes, and he comes into the house of worship, and he's given the scroll. He is going to be the guest speaker, and he's reading out of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61. And so we learn some things about Jesus' ministry. Sometimes people think, well, did Jesus just kind of like fly by the seat of his pants and just whatever town he wanted to go to. Well, that looks like a good town. Well, let's go over here for a while. Well, let's go. No, Jesus was very organized and structured in what he was doing. Right? So sometimes, for example, he'd be healing people all day long. He'd go off and be in prayer. The disciples would show up and say, listen, there's hundreds of more people showed up. You know, you need to come back. They're waiting on you. And he would say something like, well, no, we need to go over here. I know there's needs there, but we're going over here. Because Jesus was very organized and structured. He had three years to accomplish raising up his disciples to take over the mission that is, is, he's equipping them for. And um, he knows he, he's going to ultimately end up in Jerusalem, and there is where he's going, to be, he's going to be crucified. And so he reads this passage of Scripture, and he says at the end of it, today this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What scripture? Isaiah 61, which was a scripture that dealt with the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, in essence, you've been waiting for the Messiah for over 400 years. He's here, it's now, and I'm it. 
Now, they didn't take kindly to this. Because people started saying, well, is this not Joseph and Mary's son? And is this not the kid who grew up with our kids and went to school with our kids? And, well, this can't be. And so they got infuriated, right? They took him out to a cliff, and they were going to throw him off. But he just kind of walked right through the crowd and, and bypassed all of that. And so what I want to do today is I want us to look at this and say, what is it that Jesus was doing? Who did Jesus look for? Who, who did he seek out? And, and what kind of people were brought to him? And how did he respond to their needs? Because he laid down a model for his disciples, and he laid down a model for the New Testament church that says to us, this is, how, this is who I came for, and this is how I reached out to them. Now you go and do the same thing. And I'm equipping you with the Holy Spirit that will enable you to do everything that I have done and even more. He said, even greater works you will do than I did. And so here's Jesus in the middle of this, and um, it's like you've heard the phrase, practice what you preach. Jesus came to that synagogue, and he preached what he had already been practicing. And they didn't like it. So who are we to reach? Who did Jesus come to help? Well, there are five individuals that he mentions here. I don't want to kind of drill down on each one of them just a little bit because it's more than just face value. All right, so first of all, Jesus came. He says, I have come for the poor, right? These are what I call the have-nots. I have come for the poor. There are times in your life that you don't have what you need. That's what it means to be poor in something, right? To experience poverty. Maybe you don't have enough money. You don't have enough energy. You don't have enough time. You don't have enough health. You don't have enough uh, connections. Like my wife and I, our energy level today, I'm just telling you, is like a minus 10, right? We've had our grandkids all week long. We're not using to have three grandchildren at young age all week long, and we are like exhausted uh, we have no energy. So we, are ha- we have poverty of energy today. So you guys are going to pump us up, right? So obviously, when you look at the types of poverty, there is material pro- poverty, right? People who are poor. Jesus said to his disciples, the poor you will always have with you. And if you look worldwide, Jesus is spot on. Over half of the world's population, and we're up there, what, 7 billion now, Uh, Over half of the world's population lives on $2 a day or less. That's how rampant poverty is. In fact, if you go to Rwanda, who grows the coffee beans that Starbucks uses, the farmer makes less than $2 a day. He can't even afford to buy a cup of Starbucks. And so poverty is rampant around the world. Um, And it has been, always will be, regardless of, of what we try, The poor, Jesus says, we have to care for the poor. And that's why we do things like, for example, our seniors are involved with the Groveport Food Pantry. And we ask you all the time, hey, can you bring some extra things for the food pantry? That's why we take, you know, do the backpacks for the Appalachian children who who live in, you know, abject poverty here in the United States. Yes, there's poverty in the United States. Um, And why we give school supplies to those who are in need in August. And why we have, uh, we help families at Christmas and why we have the Stowe Center, which is our inner city work of our association on Parsons Avenue and at the Stowe Center. I don't know if you're familiar with it. There's information out uh, in the foyer, but we have a dental and eye care and food bank, and they feed the hungry every single day, a hot meal, 
Uh, there is, oh my goodness, so like Children's Hospital brings a mobile unit every week on site. There's a pregnancy center. There's, there's just all kinds of ministry that goes on through that facility, reaching out to the poor, and you and I help support that ministry that goes on every single day. But there's more than physical poverty. There is also moral poverty, right? People, people are morally po- impoverished because we have come to the point in our society where people can't even distinguish between right and wrong anymore. We're confused about so many things. We can't even figure out gender anymore, which is a direct attack and strategic move of the enemy. If you can wipe out people's identity uh, and they can't even figure out who they are anymore, you have a very big, you know, stronghold on the minds and the hearts of people. And so our, 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 our society is losing its moral conscience and we don't even have the desire to do the right thing anymore oftentimes. And so there's moral poverty. There's spiritual poverty. Right? There are people who are just spiritually poor. While half of the world is materially poor, Poor, most of the world is spiritually poor. They just don't know why they exist. They think they're an accident, that they just happen because, and they don't know their divine origin. They don't know their purpose in life and why God created them or if God created them. And so these are you know, the questions we're going to wrestle with in the, in the next series is because these are the questions people are asking. Well, I, you know, I don't know. Who, who is Jesus? I, why would he die for my sins? And well, what does it matter? And, and you know, that took place 2,000 years ago. How in the world can that affect my life today? And why should I even care? And so they have no knowledge of that the fact that their entire sin debt can be forgiven and they can have a purpose for life and, and a, an eternal home in heaven. They're the have-nots. And Mother Teresa was once asked, what's the, what's the greatest poverty? And she said, it's not physical poverty, it's spiritual poverty. It's the poverty of being unloved. It's the poverty of loneliness. That kind of love, she said, has to start in the home. And yet our families and our country and around the world are disintegrating. And so there's huge need when we talk about the poor. Secondly, the second group Jesus said, I came for the brokenhearted. So I, I call the let down. We've all had our hearts broken at one time or another. And so, you know, it really comes, the phrase comes from Psalm 69, 20, where David said, insults have broken my heart. And so how, what causes our hearts to be broken? There are three things. Number one is disappointment. Disappointment will break your heart. Right? Let's suppose you are engaged to somebody and all of a sudden they come to you and say, you know what, I don't, want to be, I don't think I want to get married. And so you're hugely disappointed. They've break, broken off the engagement and there is just great sense of rejection. There's a sense of, you know, your heart's just aching and disappointments in life. We are, you know, we're, we are brokenhearted because of rejection. I mean, things that people say to us and the way that they interact with us. And, you know, if you were a kid in school and you grew up and you were bullied, and, you know, now today we have cyberbullying, which is even worse, at least when, you, you know, back in my day, when you left school, you got away from the bully. Now that's just, you know, all over the Internet and, and Facebook and whatever else social media they're running, and, you know, kids are, the suicide rate among children from ages 8 to 14 has quadrupled in our country in the last several years, because there's this rejection 
that they're experiencing. And the third one is resentment. Resentment can break your heart when you hold on to the way that people have hurt you. When you carry that around, it's toxic emotion. And this absolutely leads to brokenheartedness. It will eat you alive. Resentment is worse than cancer. It is a poison of the emotional system that you cannot get away from, and it will eat you alive if you let it. These are the people Jesus came for, right? The let down. The let down by rejection, resentment, and disappointment. And the Bible says that God is close to the brokenhearted. Jesus said, I came for people who are brokenhearted. Number three is the third group is that Jesus came for the imprisoned, right? For the locked up. Now, again, uh, there's more than just physical prisons, although we have a lot of physical prisons in the United States, obviously, those who are incarcerated uh, for, you know, breaking the law and, and, and for various other things. There are tremendous ministries out there like Kairos who reaches into the prisons and are reaching inmates by the thousands across our country. And so it's a, an incredible um, ministry to those who are incarcerated, but there's also more than just physical prison, right? A person who, is, who is, uh, gives into addiction is also in a prison, right? So there can be all addictions and compulsions imprison us because people say things like, well, I just feel so trapped. I, I, I just feel like I can't get out of this. I, I just can't, you know, just, I just can't pull this off of me. I feel in chains and, and imprisoned. And you can be addicted to a substance, a person, an event, uh, pornography, relationships, all kinds of compulsions that you would like to change but you have found out you just can't, no matter how hard you try. Um, have you ever wondered why there are so many self-help books in bookstores, like Barnes & Noble, a huge, huge section? Here's the problem. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. The word lost doesn't mean I can't find something. The word lost means broken beyond repair. So now you have a broken person trying to get a self-help book a broken person can't fix a broken person. That's why self-help books don't help most people because it's the broken person trying to fix the broken person and it just doesn't work. You need Jesus in your life in order to bring about that healing where there is brokenness. And so there's another kind of thing that imprisons us and that is secrets. The secret hurts, the secret sins. Um, that you don't feel like you can tell anyone, you hold inside of you. And James says, if you want to experience healing, you've got to confess those things to somebody or somebody's, right? You've got to find a person, whether it be a counselor or a friend or a small group. Whenever somebody comes to me and says, Pastor, I'm going to tell you something. I know this is going to shock you, but I want to tell you something, which I say, there's, I don't think you, there's anything you can tell me that I've not heard. You're not going to shock me. I'm a, I want to tell you, I've never told this to anyone before. You know what immediately goes through my mind? This person's about to get set free. This person's about to experience some healing because they're about to open up to something that they've held as a secret. As we say, you're only as sick as your secrets because they are wanting to now navigate through that area of their life and find God's healing, and they find their healing through Jesus and through the Word of God that sets them free. And so imprisoned by addictions or secrets, some, for some people it's, it's a lack of education, right? When a person doesn't have access 
the education they need, it can put them in a type of, of prison. You know that half of the world cannot read or write? We're talking billions of people. Do not have the capability to read or write. So you can pump all kinds of internet stuff into their, their villages that you want. I mean, when we did a mission trip last time to Nicaragua, I mean, we're going through the, the poorest of poor areas, but everybody had a satellite dish on top of their house. And so information is being pumped in their houses, but they, they have no idea whether this information is truthful or not, or if it's, you know, government-generated, that they're trying to manipulate their minds and their lives because they have no capacity to read or write and, and to factually look up what, whether or not this is true, the truth that they're actually receiving. But the number one thing that imprisons people most people is fear. Fear imprisons people hugely. And so whatever you're afraid of, it locks you into this prison and you're fearful of getting out, right? You're, and um, you know, there's so much potential that you may have in your life that God wants to use and leverage for his kingdom, but fear holds you back. Your fear is, well, what if I fail? Or I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. I know God didn't gift me enough. I, I don't have enough of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you do. God, God, listen, God has equipped you to do every single thing he has designed for you to do. But fear often holds people back, and so they never reach their potential in life because we are held back by, by fear. And so a couple of the goals that I have for 2020 is um, doing a series on how to win the war, and a part of that war is going to be how to win the war over fear so that you can live out your full potential and how to build a faith um, that, um, that other people would want to emulate, right? They, they're going to say like, wow, you, you're, you're such a person of faith. I want to be that way, right? So there's a book in the Bible that really kind of unpacks all of that for us. Here's the fourth kind of person Jesus came for, and he came for the blind, right? These are what I call the shut out. When you're blind, you're shut out of life. You're, you're always running into walls. You don't get to experience things that other people experience. Right now in our world, there's over 50 million people who are physically blind, and the physical blindness can take on various characteristics. For example, you might be colorblind. You might be, um, you have night blindness or maybe motion blindness. There's all kinds of physical blindness. But there's also a relational blindness. Right? So this is the type of person that Jesus came after. He's, he's, he says, look, there is huge relational blindness that sets you up for self-defeating behaviors in your life. It, it, maybe you're the kind of person you've always wondered to yourself, why is it that I cannot seem to hold together relationships? It's like every relationship I get into, it's just like you know, something goes wrong, and it's, I, I don't understand what the problem is or it's not the question of maybe what the problem is, it's the who's the problem, and it's probably you, right? So um, if you've been through four or five relationships like marriages, um, and you might be a common denominator in that situation, right? I, I'm not saying that you're the only problem, you're all the problem. I'm just simply saying is we can have relational blindness in our lives and we have certain characteristics that we're bringing into a relationship that we are blind to, we call blind spots, and we don't realize that we are self-sabotaging the relationships that we have, whether it be friends or family or whoever else it might be. But here's the good news. Jesus said, I came for you. 
says, I came for you. I, I, I died for you. I want to help you see your self-defeating behavior, and let's, let's work on that together. There's another kind of blindness, and that's spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness is when our eyes are closed to the goodness of God in our lives. We attribute all the good things in our lives to us, and we attribute all the bad things in our lives to God. Isn't it amazing how bad things happen? It's always like, well, it's God's fault. Well, God, God did that. He, he must allow that to happen. And therefore, um, you know, we call it, you know, an act of God kind of thing. And so we're not willing to admit that we need a Savior, right? People do not, sin is such a, pesk, a pesky word, right? People don't even use the word anymore. And quite frankly, I didn't use it like when my children were growing up and they misbehaved, like in little sinners. And uh, I didn't say, hey, stop sinning. You know, I, I corrected the behavior, right? So we don't use the word often, but we, we, we prefer using the word mistakes. Like, you know, well, I made a mistake. And mistake means like, oops, um, you know, I messed up. It's, it's okay. I'll pay for it. or I'll correct the mistake or I'll, you know, I'll, I'll make up. For it somehow, and so we we don't look at ourselves in society and culture anymore as sinners in need of a savior. We just see ourselves as mistakers who just need to try to do better the next time around. And if I'm only a mistaker, then I never need a savior. But that's not what the Bible does. The Bible takes the word sin. In fact, the Bible uses a lot of different words to describe sin because sin is more than just actions. It's attitudes. It's uh, a spirit of rebellion. Like, we all deal with that spirit of rebellion. Okay, we were wrangling an 18-month-old all week long who has such a strong spirit of rebellion. I, I, that's what I wanted to say to my daughter. It's like, you know, who's the father of this child? The devil? I don't, I don't get it. It's just like, I mean, that kid was into everything all the time. He's so inquisitive, and he's just like, da, 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 you know, 80 miles an hour the whole time he's up. And say, oh, my goodness. Take him home, please. Here's the fifth group. Jesus said, I came to help the oppressed. This is what I call the kicked around. They're kicked around by life's circumstances. They're put down. They're played upon. They're taken advantage of. Um, there can be political oppression. Political oppression is real, not so much here in America. We have a Bill of Rights and Constitution and all those things, but many, many countries around the world do not have those things. They have dictators, and they have uh, those who are just ruling over them in, in a very political way, and um, and, you know, there are over 35 million refugees in refugee camps right now. There are many, millions who are being slaved, enslaved in the sex trafficking uh, industry in our, in our world. And that happens, yes, even right here in Columbus. In fact, we are one of the main hubs in America for sex trafficking. I didn't know if you knew that or not, but we are. There is cultural oppression, all right? Uh, there are many women around the world are culturally oppressed. Domestic violence, rape, sexual violence, gender uh, violence is increasing around the world. Each year, 2 million girls between ages 5 and 15, again, are sold into the sex market. 130 million women uh, are forced to undergo female mutilation and honor killings and those kinds of things that happen in, around the world um, through other re religions. So there is all kinds of spiritual oppression also. You know, people are depressed, right? People are just depressed, and, and our society has become more and more depressed. You, you would think with all the technology that we have, with all the access that we have immediately to everything around the world, 
that people would be more fulfilled, right? But the exact opposite has happened. Depression is off the charts in our country and around the world. And as we saw in the video, man, people are, you know, you get in deep, deep depression, you lose all sense of hope, you lose all sense of hope, you're looking for a way out. And so suicide rates are just, again, skyrocketing. And it's one of Satan's chief weapons uh, is that get, to get people in this spiritual de- depression and just oppress them in such a way that they feel like there's no other choice. Now, these are the people that Jesus came to. If you look at the life of Christ and the people that he dealt with, these are it. And these are, he left his disciples the model that he wanted them to emulate, and it's the model we want to emulate. When you look at this list, what does it say to us? It says that there's a whole lot of messed up humanity, and guess what? We're a part of it. We're just as messed up as the people we're trying to reach. Here's the, here's the, the bad part is we think, well, if I'm going to reach out with the gospel to people, then I've got to have my life in order. I've got to have my life, you know, it's like, it's like just so, and everything's got to be right, and all my relationships are great, and everything in life is going my way, and I'm not dealing with any problems anymore, and I'm dealing with any internal issues. And we think, if I just get my life to that point, then yes, I can say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You need Christ. Well, good luck when you, you let me know when you get there, okay? Because the Apostle Paul didn't even make it, right? At the end of his life, he says, man, I'm the chief of sinners. Like, I'm, I'm just like, I, I'm trying to do what I ought to do, but I find myself not doing the very things I know I ought to do, right? And yet, he led thousands to Christ and, you know, established how many churches, wrote a large portion of the New Testament. God greatly used him, not because he was perfect, but because he was submitted to the will of God for his life. And God gave him certain personality and abilities and traits, and God leveraged those things for his kingdom purposes. So it's what we call your shape, your spiritual gifts, your heart, that's your passion, um, yeah, your, your abilities, your experiences in life, it can be painful experiences, your personality. All of this makes up your unique shape that God wants to use you to reach out to these kinds of people because they are all, 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 all around you. They're in your family, they're in your neighborhood, they're in your workplace, they're in every establishment you go into. We are a messed up group of people, but Jesus can take messed up people and help make them right. right? It's not that we're perfect, you never reach perfection until you get into heaven but we can make progress, right? I'm a whole lot further along the continuum line than I was when I got saved back when I was 16 years old. I'm not there yet by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm a whole lot further than I used to be. And that's what we're going for. He says it's the year of the Lord's favor. It's the year of Jubilee. And so God had set up and established a a, a way in which he would release people of of all of their debt and, and restore land back to their original owners. And so every, God says, hey, take every day of the, one day a week off, right? The Sabbath. And every seven years, it was the Sabbath year, and the farmers were to let the land lay and let it restore itself. And then every, um, every um, seventh Sabbath year, which was 49 years, that 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And so the nation of Israel was to, to, um, honor this, but they never did, ever. 
They never followed the, the year of Jubilee in which God was going to restore all things, and so God had to send them off into captivity to help them understand that this is a really important thing to him. And as a result of that, when they came out of exile, they had a whole new um, perspective. Here's what I know. When people came to Jesus, they always came to Jesus for one of three reasons. Either they had a need, a hurt, or a question. A need, a hurt, or a question. And so Jesus was equipped and prepared to, to tackle all three. That's what my goal is for us as a church, is that we are equipped to tackle all three. People bring needs, we need to address the needs. People bring a hurt, we need to help them find healing in their hurt. We, they bring a question, we need to be able to answer the questions. Right? It's not anymore, no more is it can just be, well, you all come, or you know, the Bible said so. That does not answer anybody's question. If people are told one thing in school, and then we, you know, they hear something else in church, and their two are not one and the same, which do they believe? Which do they follow? Which should they believe? Uh, well, it's, you know, it's, you would say, well, you, you ought to just believe the Word of God. Well, that might be true, but if, you, if you're like me and you didn't grow up in a Christian home, you had no biblical knowledge whatsoever, you were absolutely illiterate about the Bible and Jesus and anything else, that answer is not going to get a very positive response, right? You, you've got to be able to answer it better than that for people to get it. So what did Jesus come to do? Um, Let's look at those five things, and in three minutes, I'm gonna, I want you to fill in a blank. So I want you to think about, okay, Jesus came, he says, for the poor, right? There's all kinds of, of poverty. He says, I came to the poor. What did I do? I came to preach the good news, right? So I want you to think about that line represents, who do you know that's in some kind of spiritual poverty, perhaps, or uh, moral poverty, material. Who do you know that needs the good news of the gospel of Christ? Because good news, really the gospel is the good news. It is the good news of what Christ has done for us so that we can, we can experience relationship with our creator and we can reap the benefits, the spiritual benefits of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. So who is that for you? Is, is it a family member? Is it a neighbor? Is it a coworker? I, I want you to start filling in names. And if you don't have a name doesn't come to your mind today, that's fine. Think about this over the week. What is the good news? The good news is you're not an accident. God did make you on purpose. God created you out of love. He has a, a purpose for your life. And there's a reason why you exist. And what God is offering to you through his son, Jesus Christ, is a free gift. The second one, he says, I've come to heal the brokenhearted. I've come to heal the brokenhearted. Everybody has a hidden wound, a hurt, a brokenness within them that needs healing. And so um, people look for, for that healing in all different kinds of ways. But the fact of the matter is the Bible gives us the antidote or the prescription by which we can receive healing from our Heavenly Father. You know, it's like if you have a physical problem, do you not go to a doctor, right? So if, if I have a physical problem and the doctor says, hey, you got to have surgery to correct this, okay. So I go under the knife, right? And so the knife cuts, it hurts, it's painful. Uh, 
You might get some good drugs after that to help curve the pain for a while, but, but there's that process of healing and restore, restoration. And so the surgeon is bringing pain in your life in order to restore the physical body. Well, the same thing is true emotionally, all right? So people say all the time, well, pastor, uh, I don't want to do, I don't want to bring up the past. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with those things because it's too hurtful. Well, hello. That's why you're carrying them around because they are hurtful. But the only way you're going to heal that hurt is to get it out into the open and deal with it and go through the process of experiencing God's healing process, right? Yes, it's going to hurt. So does a surgeon hurt you when he cuts into your body, but you go through that pain because you know it's ultimately going to lead to the healing process. Same thing is true emotionally. Or the third one, he says, I'm going to proclaim freedom to those who are locked up, who feel trapped. Maybe you feel trapped in a relationship, a, a, a habit, a financial issue or situation. Um, maybe a circumstance. Maybe you have fears that you just can't overcome. And Jesus says, you know, the truth can set you free from that stuff and provide recovery of sight for the blind. It's another issue. Well, okay, you may not be able to bring physical sight to somebody uh, who is blind, but you can certainly bring, well, you may be able to if God tells you to pray for them and pray for their, their blindness to be healed. God can do that. Or it, it, but it, there's a spiritual blindness, right? So we pray. What do we pray? We've asked God to remove the blinders. Remember what 2 Corinthians 4, 4 said? That the reason why people don't believe in the gospel is because their enemy, Satan, has blinded their eyes to the truth of the gospel and the truth of their condition before God. And how do I know that? Because I've never, ever, ever, you've heard me say this many times, I've never done a funeral for anyone who wasn't going to heaven. Everybody thinks when they die, they're going to heaven. I have relatives. I see the things on Facebook. Somebody, an uncle dies, you know, has no relationship with God as they ever knew of. But, you know, he's always gone to a better place. He's always gone to heaven. We'll all see everybody in heaven. And it's one of the myths that we believe uh, because we don't want to deal with the reality of, well, how could there be a loving God who would allow people to end up in hell for eternity? We, We can't. Even as Christians, we have a hard time justifying that in our minds. And so we, what, what, what do people do is that they reach all the way back. So, you know, Aunt Susie died, never darkened the door of a church all of her life. But, you know, back when she was six years old, she went to VBS and she raised her hand. And that, that's it. That, that's the sign that she made it. Not according to the Bible. And so we live with this um, self-deception because we don't want to deal with the issue of eternal destinations. But we have to. We have to be a part of that process of helping them to recover. And somebody says, well, you know, that's just really none of my business. You know, religion's just a personal matter, not according to Jesus. It is part of your business. You can do it in a in a way that is non-judgmental. You can do it in a way that you're just a jerk, but you can do it in a way that is loving and kind and compassionate with people. You need to know the difference and approach it in the right way. Release the oppressed. How do we release the oppressed, man? It's, it's about love. It's about acceptance. It's about helping them process all this. So I close with this. In Matthew 25, 
Jesus is talking about, you know, one day it will be judged for certain things. And he went on to say, I, I will, I'll say I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. We will say, well, when did we do this to you? that Lord? And Jesus says, when you did it to the least of my brothers, you did it for, you did it for me. So these are the people who Jesus came to. This is the method by which he approached their lives. Now, we have to flesh this out, right, for ourselves on how we're going to approach this. The bottom line is this. We cannot sit idly by and watch the world pass us by without engaging in the people around us outside the kingdom of God. We just can't do that. I mean, we come to church. We fellowship with one another. We have great time here on worship in small groups, but we can no longer just sit back and watch the world who's heading into an eternal destiny that is hell, separated from God forever, and just think that we're going to waltz into heaven and say, well, Lord, wasn't my, wasn't my responsibility? Oh, yes, it is your responsibility. It's a part of the responsibility and the privilege of being a part of God's kingdom. If we as a church are going to survive the next five years, we had better start engaging or we won't be here. Look at our church. It's dwindling. The money is running out. If we don't do something, and I'm not saying, well, let's just reach the law so we can keep our doors open. Not at all. We should have been doing this a long, long time ago on a regular basis. And I'm not saying some of you aren't doing that. Many of you are but it's the responsibility of all of us. And once we pool it together, the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the shape that God's given you, God wants to bless. He wants to see people come to faith in Christ. He wants to see the hurt being healed. He wants to see people renewed and restored and transformed in their relationship with Jesus Christ. But we have to work together in order for that to ever take place. Let's bow our heads together.